0: Anderson Cooper is back with season two of his podcast, All There Is.
1: I'll sit down with President Biden in the White House for a conversation about the losses in his life and how he lives with them. I don't know anybody who welcomes grief, but you got to confront it.
0: All There Is with Anderson Cooper is about how we can live on with loss and with love.
2: I mean this from
1: the bottom of my heart. My word is a Biden. They're always going to be with you.
0: Listen to All There Is with Anderson Cooper wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Wheelhouse DNA.
1: I have surmised over the years that when I walk into a room and meet with a family or a hospital room or an assisted living, it doesn't matter, or a psych ward for a kid, let's take when I walked into your house the day after Bob died. The minute someone in that room with us cracked a joke and everybody laughed, I knew the decision had been made to survive.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: When, when people laugh, it is a subconscious decision to survive. There were jokes in the concentration camps during the Holocaust. Sure. Jokes about hunger strikes and things like that because humor is life-affirming and eating is life-affirming.
0: It's for the living. From Wheelhouse DNA and ACAST... This is Comfort Food, a show about life, loss, grief, celebration, and the meals that support us through it all. I'm your host, Kelly Rizzo. If you listened to our last episode, you'll know that in honor of the two-year anniversary of losing my late husband, Bob, I'm bringing in some of his nearest and dearest for this month. And my guest today is certainly one of those people. He was Bob's rabbi and was instrumental in guiding his loved ones, myself included, through the grief process after his passing. He is, of course, a rabbi. He's an author of five incredible books, and he's someone who has helped over a thousand people usher loved ones through the death and grief experience. So, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Rabbi Steve Leader. Steve, I am so, so happy, so honored, so thrilled to have you here under some pretty cozy circumstances. And you know, you've know, you been there for me through the most difficult time of my life. And now it's pretty nice two years after the fact to kind of sit back with a little perspective and just have this conversation with you today. So thank you for being here.
1: You are so welcome. And it's really good to sit down and, and talk with you. And, and I'm sure we're going to reminisce about Bob. And that's also beautiful.
0: It's been such a big part of your life is helping people through the most difficult time in their life. And you really did that for me. And I'm just so grateful because I was very new to this world. I'd never experienced any big loss before. I mean, besides my grandparents. Mm -hmm. And then to lose somebody like Bob so suddenly, such a massive loss that wasn't just my personal loss, but loss for the world because everyone knew and loved him. You know, to have you come into our life at that point and truly be such a source of comfort and care and knowledge and perspective was just so meaningful. And I know we knew each other a bit before, but that's really when we got close.
1: Yeah. And many times the first thing, my first objective is to organize the chaos. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Because it's, as you know, such a surreal experience. yeah, And you feel adrift, unmoored. Uh, And and when I can come in and say, I want to do three things with you today. First, I want to see if there are any questions left over from dealing with the cemetery and the mortuary. Second, we're going to make a big stew of stories about Bob and we're going to laugh and we're going to cry and we're going to do it for as long as we feel like it. And third... I'm going to walk you through what's going to happen tomorrow from the moment you arrive till the moment you depart. And just those few sentences, I can sense the barometric pressure change in the room because people feel like, Oh, okay. We're not going to walk this path without a guide. Yeah. And there are of course many more steps and stages as you know, to helping people through these things. Just having someone who says, I know where we're going, follow me. Yeah. That's big.
0: And that's something after I know you've said, I've heard you say, and then you say in your book too, that you've been present at over a thousand, whether it's deathbeds, bedsides, or people who have, I'm sure, passed away suddenly and in the presence of their family. So you really know now what questions you're going to ask or what questions you're going to be asked. So that's why you go in there armed with these questions. Yeah. These answers.
1: I was actually better at it by the time Bob died than I was years before. And I don't think I was ever bad at it. But so I've always wanted to write this book called How to Have Your Second Child First, which is a great title. Yeah. Okay. But you can't write that book. There are certain things you just have to live to understand and do differently the next time. So I had been a rabbi for about 32, 33 years, wow. helping families through these terrible losses and gentler losses too.
2: And I, I thought I was doing a pretty good job as the rabbi. And then my dad died. Right. And I
1: realized that a lot of what Steve Leader, the rabbi, was right. saying to people was very different than
2: what I learned and understood as Steve Leader, the son. Right. And I recalibrated. And not that it was worth what my father went through. He had Alzheimer's for 10 years.
1: But I haven't allowed it to be worthless either. Like I, I, I learned from the experience that I was, I was telling some half truths.
0: Well, to I mean to put it even bluntly, you said in your book, "The Beauty of What Remains." Of course, you said in your book, "You're like in retrospect, you had felt like you were full of shit."
2: Yeah, yeah. I,
1: the book is is part field guide, part memoir, part apology right. for what. Steve Leder, the rabbi, thought was right, and what Steve Leader, the son, discovered was kind of right. What I've discovered
2: as I've gotten older, lived more, learned more, as a son, brother, husband, father, man, rabbi, human being, is that there's a lot more duality to existence than we realize because we avoid so much of it because the dissonance is uncomfortable this
1: this like dichotomous tension between ideas that that is going on inside of us and to me like the most deeply
2: spiritual thing a person I can achieve in my life is to have an armistice, a ceasefire with these dualities in tension.
1: Now, I won't be so cryptic. I'll be more specific. So for example, clergy are full of platitudes about memory. May her memory
2: be a blessing. You know, he'll live on in your memories. And that's True. But memory's beautiful, but it also really, really hurts sometimes. It's both.
1: Mm -hmm. And loss and death and pain expose you to these dualities. Memory, you'll have a minute. Yeah, but it also really hurts. Like, Kelly, you are capable of watching things
2: about Bob and
1: reading things and I
2: gave the eulogy at my father's funeral. I have the thumb drive. He's been dead five and a half years. I just, I just can't watch it. We have videos of him playing with
1: our kids when they were little. I can't watch it. It hurts too much. So the hurt part of it is different for everyone, but it is a part of memory and, and it's a part of love. And, there's a duality between life and death. You know, we're we we we're sad about death and it's an ultimate reality, but without it, there would frankly be no life.
3: Right. Yeah.
1: Right? I mean, Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. Right. Imagine a deathless life. Would you really want to live a deathless life?
0: No, it would have literally zero meaning.
1: Correct. These are the dualities that you start to understand, yeah. you know, and- Everyone's been in a therapist's office who's gone to therapy with dualities, dissonance. I love my parents. I hate my parents. I love my parents. I hate my parents. I'm glad I have kids. I I can't handle this. What I mean by the most spiritual thing in terms of this armistice, this peacemaking, is for me, I can only speak for myself, but recognizing and making peace with the fact that certain dualities and tensions cannot be resolved. You cannot change the fact that memory is beautiful and painful. Right. You cannot change the fact that life is beautiful and it and it ends. Accepting that 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 these are irreconcilable differences for me is a reconciliation. Yeah. Making peace with what cannot be resolved for me is a resolution.
0: Yeah, that's a lot about what, you know, what your book is about, the yeah. beauty of what remains. It's like there's beauty in the sadness. There's beauty yes. in the death. And there's, you know, and as you mentioned, you felt so different after your dad passed away. You're like, oh, now I get it. Like, yeah. I've been speaking to it almost as an outsider. That's but, right. But still having to act like you have all the answers. Exactly.
1: Well, first like, of all, my role involves so much acting.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it just you, does. you. Right. You have to. You know, it's like fake it till you make it type thing. Well, also, and
1: people. N- so I I um I was in a very bad car accident and had to have spinal surgery and had really really horrible pain for a long time and it forced me to finally go get some help because it made me so bitter and so I started seeing psychiatrist about twelve years ago. And, you know, mostly every week. And I remember saying to him one time, I feel like the minute I step outside my front door, I'm acting. And he looked at me and said, well, you are. People need you to play a role. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm not a hypocrite? No. And he said, no, you're fulfilling a role. And people are projecting things onto that role. They need you to be who you are when you step out that door. And I felt less hypocritical. Um, kind of, again, making peace with the kabuki and the real.
0: Yeah. I mean, I felt, you know, as I'd never lost anybody before Bob. And then once you lose, especially a spouse, that now I'm like, oh, my God, I feel so bad for all the times that anyone else lost somebody before. And I was just like, oh, you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, and I'm like. Yeah. God, I was yeah. so I was so full of shit, you yep. know, because like, I had no idea what it's could actually you? like. And yeah. now I can be like, oh, I get it. Yeah, I get it.
1: You can't have your second child first,
0: right? And right. You
1: can't marry your second wife first, right? It just doesn't work that way.
0: No, you've got it. You've got to go through it. You know, I had met you before because Bob lost his best friend, and yes. you were his rabbi. Yes, and so we met you through those services and through his family and everything. And then, um, you and Bob got pretty close. And then to us, there was no question when this happened with Bob that we're like, we need, we yeah. need Steve. Yeah, And I think it was the second day. So the day after he passed is the first day you came over to our house and you sat with me. I mean, you kind of like beelined right for me. Yep. You're like, Kelly's who I need to talk to here. Yep. And you just brought me so much comfort. Even though I had, you know, my family there too by that time, you know, I was just like, I really want to talk to Steve because, you know, even though we hadn't spent that much time together before, I just knew that you were going to be the guy like that was going to help so tremendously. And you're right. Like I didn't know what to expect. And especially, yes, I've been raised with, I mean, every single one of my friends is Jewish. My husband was Jewish. Yeah. Like, I mean, I've been around <laughs> Jews my whole life. Yeah, you know so what wasn't... I say
1: about Italians? Italians mm-hmm. are happy Jews. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> or
1: Jews are depressed Italians. Right, exactly.
0: Very, very true. <laughs> so, you know, I've been around it my whole life. I mean, I've been to countless bar and bar mitzvahs yeah. and, you know, your mom, and shivas. Your and, mom
1: worked for a Jewish company.
0: Yeah. Yep. So it was, you know, it, it wasn't totally foreign to me. Um,
1: it was foreign to me.
0: Yeah. I'm just saying being
1: the Jewish part. And especially,
0: you know, Bob was, you know, the quintessential (laughs) like Jewish husband, right. Where just being around him, I I felt like, all right, I got a little bit of an education in that department. However, in terms of, you know, and this is something that we haven't really addressed yet on this podcast that I feel is very important that I really wanted to talk to you about because Mm -hmm. it is something that If you haven't gone through it yet, you're going to go through it. Mm -hmm. I went through it earlier than I thought I was going to, but I went through it and I made it through. (laughs) And you were so helpful in what you were talking about. This is what's going to happen. This is how it works. Whether it's the gruesome, dark, upsetting talk about cemetery stuff. Fortunately, I didn't have to deal with that as much because... You know, Adam, Bob's nephew, and a a couple of his friends stepped up because I was just incapable at that point. Um, But in terms of what actually the service was going to be, like, I—
1: Yeah, we structured the chaos. It was so
0: overwhelming. That's right. And remember that week, I was so sick. Like, I I literally thought I was going to die myself that I'm like, how am I going to do this? And you're like, we're going to do it.
1: We're insulated and distanced from it in our culture. Someone dies, even someone after a long illness dies, they're whisked away and you, you have no real contact with the physicality of death. Right. Most cultures, you bathe the person's body, you prepare it for burial yourself. You, you have this surreal, but almost elevated connection to the person's spirit and body. And that's gone now. You know, it's gone in most of our culture. Yep. So this idea of seeing and of placing earth upon the casket, which some people see as, oh, how could you ask a family to do that? And my view is how, how could we allow total strangers to bury the people we love? Right. That, that's not beautiful and loving. Yep. And it's also part of detaching from the physical. And just so you know, as a guy who had stood next to people like you, looking at the bodies of their loved ones, mm-hmm. literally more than a thousand times. Honestly, Kelly, like I was there and I was present and I was there to support everyone each of those times, but I didn't feel that much. Right. It wasn't my loved one. Now, I felt in a way for Bob, of course, because I loved him so much, but right. most of the time it's not that visceral for me. Plus, I'm I'm performing a service, a, a role. I, yeah, if
0: you were I, breaking down the yeah, whole time, you wouldn't be much. I, I,
1: have to a, I have to have a shard of ice in me or I'm useless.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I've seen it. I've seen it all. Right. But honestly, in some ways, and I hope this doesn't come across in the wrong way. Most of the time, I could have been eating a sandwich too. I, I had to be, I had to disassociate to some degree yeah. or I'm useless So I never knew really what you were feeling or anyone else was feeling looking at their loved
0: one's Mm -hmm. body. Right. Until you went through it.
1: Until I went through it. And my dad died and his funeral was the morning of the eve of Yom Kippur called Kol Nidre. I fly home to Minneapolis. I'm one of five kids. And we're sitting in the, the, the service was at the synagogue and then they drive to the cemetery. That's how they do it there. We're sitting in this little room off the hallway in the synagogue. My four siblings, all our spouses, our kids, my mom. The young rabbi walks in to take us in to see our father's body in the casket before it's closed and the service is going to start. And I remember when he walked in saying to myself, I know exactly how the rabbi feels right now, but I have no idea how I feel. And then he walked us in and I approached my father's body in the casket. Now, to really understand this, you have to realize that I have looked almost physically, physically, almost identical to my father my whole life. Wow. I mean, the running joke when we were out together, worked together, whatever he say, you never know who son this is, would you? He was very proud of it. Right. So like, if you took a picture of me at 15 and my dad at 15, other than the clothing And one would be black and white. And you couldn't tell the difference. So I approached the casket and I put my hand on his chest because I I didn't want to
2: feel how cold I knew he would be, his skin. And I just put my hand on his chest. I looked at him. And my first thought was, "Huh, that's how I'm going to look when I'm dead. Holy shit. And my son is bending over my casket. I am going to die. 55 years old, a thousand funerals, and I
1: hadn't really internalized and really faced the fact that I am going to die.
2: And that realization in a deep way really changed my life for the better. So
1: what you experienced looking at Bob, what I experienced looking at my dad, there
2: is no other road. There is no other way. There is no other journey that wakes us up. It's the only teacher. Yeah. After that
0: moment. You went on to, once again, if we didn't make this clear enough already, you presided
2: over Bob's funeral. And I was so grateful. It was maybe one of, well,
0: being surrounded by comedians the whole time was so, so helpful. Yeah. And.
1: And come on. I slayed with the opener. You killed,
0: you killed with the opener. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember it? Can we say it? Yeah. All right. What was it?
1: Okay. Just full disclosure, I checked this out with the um, intended party before. So first of all, I don't know if you remember this because it's a surreal experience, but it was during COVID still. And so they had this like little plastic bag. They slid over this very phallic-looking microphone.
0: Yeah, like a little. And so
1: the guy came up before I got up to speak. And they were being
0: very serious about it. Like none of us gave two shots. We're like, we don't care. Yeah,
1: and he's sliding this clear plastic bag over this microphone. And I just thought, oh man, Bob would have just, yeah. Bob would have just torn this up. Yeah. I mean, he, he would have had something hilarious to say.
0: thousand percent.
1: And then I got up and I said, I know we're all here with just shattered hearts. And we were. That's so sad. It's so unbelievable. And if Bob was here, he would stand up here right now and he would look out at us and he would ask the most human of all questions.
2: Why? Why? Why wasn't it Stamos?
0: (laughs) It's so true. It was so perfect. We all, we all got such a laugh that we needed. And there were some of, you know, the world's greatest comedians in the audience. I mean, Chappelle was there, like there was so, and everyone got this just release that yeah. they needed in that moment yeah. and we all had a laugh and and i have to say i know you're not a comedian but you
1: the delivery you was killed. solid yeah yeah it was, yeah it was i thought it through it and was it you was know, done
0: very very well bob would have been very proud
1: i think most comedians every comedian will understand what i'm about to say and maybe every person but there are moments just after you deliver a punchline that feels like an eternity even though it's a nanosecond when it's silent and you're wondering did it bomb and then all of a sudden there was a roar i mean a roar of laughter yeah
2: and i realized yeah i i brought bob back in a in the way he would want
1: to have been brought back
0: yeah it was it was it was perfect and we all needed it and it's like you knew exactly yeah and we needed
1: and sometimes that's not needed
0: no i mean depending right right. if it was was seven year olds
1: that's right right but when it's that's right you have to read the room right
0: when it's bob saget's funeral as devastated as we all were but it's a room full of his friends and people who knew him and comedians
1: and his shtick you,
0: you knew it would it would land yes and it did yeah This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you know a bit about me and this show, you know I've been through a lot in the past two years. When I lost Bob, I struggled to make sense of what came next and how I'd get through the pain of grief. I found that it was so important to process my feelings, talk through it, and really take care of myself. Sometimes you just need or want someone to listen, and therapy is a great place to start. And therapy doesn't just have to be there for the big, life-shattering moments— It can help you navigate day-to-day emotions, problems, big decisions, and successes too. It really empowers you to be the best version of yourself no matter what situation you're dealing with. Life never stops coming at you, and it's important to prioritize a bit of self-care as you're managing it all. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp is entirely online, so you can dig in from the comfort of your home or wherever you want to be. Sometimes it's hard to even find the time for yourself, but it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and work with your schedule. It's so easy to join. Once you fill out a brief questionnaire, you'll be matched with a licensed therapist. The best part is, if you don't connect with your therapist, that's no problem. You can switch to someone else at any time for no additional charge to find the person you feel most comfortable with. Learn to make time for yourself with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Comfort Food today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel dot slash Comfort Food. Anderson Cooper is back with season two of his podcast, All There Is.
1: I'll sit down with President Biden in the White House for a conversation about the losses in his life and how he lives with them. I don't know anybody who welcomes grief, but you got to confront it.
0: All There Is with Anderson Cooper is about how we can live on with loss and with love.
1: I mean this from the bottom of my heart. My word is a Biden. They're always going to be with you.
2: Listen to all there is with Anderson Cooper wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's interesting to me that one thing, especially, especially in the Jewish culture, um, that obviously I've learned now over the years and grieving the loss of loved ones is, is how big of a part of food. It, like, for instance, Italians, obviously, we love food, and that's a big part in our life every single day. Yes. But when it comes to comfort food during death, yes. I feel is weird. Well, it's more than that. The Jews <laughs> really, really, really are, you know, go yeah. above and beyond, especially with the Shiva. and
1: But it's more than comfort. It's also life-affirming. Mm-hmm which is also true of laughter. When I walked into your well, house... like the living house, eat
0: and the leave, living laugh? Well,
1: I have surmised over the years that when I walk into a room and meet with a family or a hospital room or an assisted living, it doesn't matter, or a psych ward for a kid. Let's take when I walked into your house the day after Bob died. The minute someone in that room with us cracked a joke and everybody laughed. I knew the decision had been made to survive. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: When, when people laugh, it is a subconscious decision to survive. There were jokes in the, in, in the concentration camps during the Holocaust. Sure. Jokes about hunger strikes and things like that because humor is life affirming and Eating is life affirming. It's yeah. it's for the living.
0: I remember I ate that night. Not a lot. But remember Craig from yeah. Craig's restaurant. Like he brought food over all week. But that first night that Bob passed away, I remember he brought food over and I ate a little bit and I remember thinking, like, how am I able to eat? Isn't this bad? Like, yeah. are people gonna judge me for eating? Cause usually when people lose somebody, they're they're, yeah. they're like, I can't even eat and i was like how am i able to and may, maybe it was a subconscious decision i'm like i'm moving forward you, i like eg- i'm not going exactly to let right. this like even though i was absolutely devastated and, and unable to function in other ways i was like i'm damn it i'm going to i'm going to live you got to eat right.
1: right right i mean that be a good headstone wouldn't it and you got to <laughs> eat <laughs> yeah, honestly
3: that that, that <laughs> might be that might right? be and, right. and r- it r- is remember that
1: it is absolutely Life affirming. Yeah. And, and also it's proof of something else that, you know, you know, I talk about this in, in uh, the book. People face death the same way they face life. Yeah. You weren't going to get a new personality because Bob no. died. You were going to become more so right. not different.
0: Yeah. That was one thing that was so fascinating more to hear that so, You said,
1: right. Yeah. It intensifies who we are. If you're a feeder, you're going to feed. If you're a hugger, you're going to hug. If you're a crier, you're going to cry. If you're a joker, you're going to joke. Yeah. And that's, How it should be.
0: Yeah, I never felt myself become a different person.
1: And you didn't want to be around someone pretending to be a different person. You
0: said you have to be your authentic self.
1: That's right. Otherwise, it's almost insulting to the person who's grieving
2: because they need to know that the bottom hasn't fallen out of the world. Right. And that, so these things, these rituals, food, song, um, laughter, these, these are the life affirming components and,
1: and they're to be embraced. They're not disrespectful.
0: Well, I will say that, um, I was a little, uh, when I, cause I didn't find out what your comfort food was until today.
1: Pizza and a hot fudge <laughs> Sunday. That's it. That's if I'm well, ever on death row, that's what I'm having. Okay, Pizza and well, a hot fudge uh, sundae. L-
0: let's hope that this is, uh, now, wh- this is life row.
1: I I thought about blintzes, potato latkes, Langer's pastrami on rye with mustard. You know, I I had some other ideas, but I went with, you know,
3: the last meal approach
0: having that come in here for you in a second, which I'm very excited about. Um, When I heard it was pizza, I was like, yes, because we have not had pizza yet. Really? Yeah, nobody's chosen pizza Are you serious? Uh What's wrong with these people? Lots of other Italian-type food, but not actual pizza. You're
1: having the wrong guess. I
0: I, I guess so. But uh, um, I will say I I, I did go to a a shiva last weekend, and um, there was an incredible spread of food. And it was one of those things where you're talking to so many people. And I kept eyeing the food out of the corner of my eye and being like, I need to go get it. And then Jeff Ross comes out to me. He's like, Did you try the latkes? Did you try the, the smoked salmon? And I was like, No, I'm talking to people and I don't want food on my face. And then we left. And then he's like, Well, did you eat? Didn't you? I was like, I didn't eat. And I felt like I was a horrible Shiva guest <laughs> in that moment because well, I didn't eat all of the amazing food. And I felt. Just so it, <laughs> I, I just missed the If it makes you was...
1: feel any better, Kelly, the mitzvah, the obligation, the commandment for Shiva is not to eat, but to feed. Okay. To feed the mourners.
0: Yeah. I've, oh, here, look at, look at this, Steve. Oh, my
1: God. I've died and Are gone you to heaven. excited? Thank oh. you. Oh, how much better does it get? Is there anything better, really, God, than a hot fu- the- Ice cream is the greatest
0: I wanna know who Food would have been really earth. happy about this.
1: Robert.
0: He was obsessed with ice cream. And, oh God. What would happen? A hot Fudge Sunday for this lunch. Is so good. Mm. Um, what's your favorite ice cream? I like it. Once it's like pizza. Well, there's no until bad. Today we maybe. said there's no bad pizza. But um there's no bad ice cream. No,
1: no, but if you were like, this is the last Probably chocolate, bowl of ice maybe. cream. Not what flavor? What kind
0: oh, like brand? Mm-hmm. Um Oh, maybe like Hagen Started by a Jewish family. <laughs> but um, what I really want to talk about is mm. you have this wealth of knowledge and data and experiences to pull from now, as you said, well over a thousand families. Yes. Um, people, you know, different families, people who have passed away. That you've been able to gather this information from of how to, besides ice cream and pizza, how to comfort them.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And obviously a big thing of what I want to do here is because I never really knew how to comfort people who were grieving until I went through it myself. And I know everyone's different because what might be comforting to me might not be comforting to somebody else and vice versa. But I'm sure that after over a thousand people, there are things that you can pretty solidly say, yes. like these things work. And whether you are the person who is going through the grief mm-hmm. or you're trying to help somebody else who's grieving. Yeah. Like what is the most helpful and what is the yeah. least helpful?
1: You're, you're right. I mean, we're all on our own grief journey. The only expert in your grief is you. Mm-hmm. But there are common denominators.
3: Yeah.
2: So one of them, And I think the most important of all, for those of us who want to
1: do the right thing for someone who's grieving, is really
2: simple. And everyone knows how to do it. Show up. Mm -hmm. Show up. And be yourself. Doesn't get much more uh, simple than that. Doesn't mean easy, but simple. Correct. And... People call me. I
1: often get calls. Steve, my best friend from college, was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and um, he's got three to six months. And I'm going to go back and back to New York and see him. And I I don't know what to say. What should I say? I said I can't tell you what to say. I can tell you what to do. Walk in the door and be yourself. We talked about this earlier. If you're a joker, joke. If you're a feeder, feed. If you're a hugger, hug. If you're a cryer, cry. show up and be real. We all know how to do that. But for some reason, when it comes to people who are suffering, we feel like we need to pretend. And pretending is kind of an insult to their pain. If, if something terrible happened in my life and you walk in the door, the thing that will make me feel the most secure that all is not lost. You show up with, you know, a hot fudge sundae and a slice of pizza because that's Kelly. Right, it's consistency. Well, it's like that's who you are and that's who you are in my life. And even after I'm going into my 38th year as a rabbi now, when I'm standing on the front doorstep or I'm standing in the hospital hallway before I walk in the room, I don't know what I'm going to say. I just know I have to cross the threshold and be Steve and the rest will unfold. So that is a common denominator and I have lots of cute ways of framing it, but it's really show up, be real. And that's number one. The next thing I would say is imploding the mythology of grief as a linear experience because you know, it is not. Right. I I often say that anybody who thinks the shortest distance between two points is a straight line doesn't understand grief. Good point. Because it's much more like waves mm-hmm. that come and go, oh, come and go, come time. and go. Sometimes they're very close together and they're really aggressive. And sometimes they do spread out. and And sometimes you have long periods of beautiful, calm seas and sunny days. And then your back is turned and a rogue wave rises up and just takes you under. Yeah. I hear a Hank Williams song. I cry.
3: Because it's my dad.
0: I bawled today watching (laughs) the end of your podcast or Bob's podcast with you. You know, I haven't cried in maybe a week or so about Bob. Mm -hmm. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, something unexpected just hits you. And then all of a sudden I was like ugly crying (laughs) <laughs> while I was getting yeah. ready to come here today. Yeah.
1: and this idea that grief is like any other disease that gets a little better every day if you just do the right things until it's gone is really insulting to people or grieving. Right. And it implies there's a wrong way to do it, which there isn't. So that's a common denominator. When, when you can help, when people come to
2: see me and basically in their grief are asking, am I normal? I don't want a date. Or... Um, I I cry every day, or I don't want to leave the
1: house. Whatever it is, am I normal?
0: I remember I asked you—actually, I'm going to see if I can pull it up. I texted you. This was, you know— Fresh. Very fresh. I said to you, this was January 17th, so eight days after. Mm -hmm. I said, thank you so incredibly much. It's still not quiet yet, but it's calmed down a bit, which is actually nice. But this is certainly coming in waves although I feel the last couple of days I haven't been crying as much because I'm just so beat up. I guess that's normal. Thank you again, Steve. Your support means so much. <laughs> and I remember saying that to you as if I was like,
3: am I, am
0: I going to be judged that I haven't cried? As I mean, this was a week after.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I remember I had a couple days that I wasn't crying all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was like, am I a bad person? Is this weird? And I exactly. literally, I'm like, I'm yeah. going to ask Steve, if, is, this, is this normal?
1: Yeah, it is like an ocean and it doesn't stop, but it changes
2: and we change. Grief is not a condition that clears up. Right. If it was, then the love has to clear up. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: That's not a good trade.
3: Right.
1: Now, the other part of this, I mean, we should talk about the other side of that coin. So in in this book, um, The Beauty of What Remains, it's like a 55,000-word book. There are maybe 200 words about what I'm going to describe to you. And I put it in just because I thought it would help a small handful of people. And it is the thing that so many, when we were launching the book, so many talk show hosts and podcast hosts and all that wanted to talk about. You know, 200 words out of 55,000. Ooh. Which is? Which is, there's another side to that, that you don't get over it because then you'd have to get over the love. I also get calls that go something like this. Steve, I haven't talked to my mother in 10 years. I always, since I was a little girl, felt horrible about myself around her. She's cold. She's narcissistic. She's withholding. And I really haven't talked to her in 10 years. I text her on her birthday and on Mother's Day. And
2: it's better for both of us.
1: But she's just been diagnosed. And she's got three to six months to live. And I'm really worried
2: that I'm going to feel so guilty when she dies. To which I say, maybe, but I doubt it. Yeah. More likely, you're going to be relieved. People look at me like, oh, "How does he know?
3: Am yeah.
1: I am I a horrible person? Oh my God! No, you're not a horrible person. You're a person, and it goes back to this thing we've been talking about: how people face death the same way they face life. You're relieved she's been out of your life for ten years. You're going to be relieved when she's dead, and it doesn't make you a bad person. It's just the truth. Right? And it's those two hundred words. You have no idea because there's that's the side of it, people. Don't talk about and do suppress and subordinate.
0: Well, and that that kind of ties in or almost the opposite of something. And I, I did briefly mention this to you um, before or right when you got here is that the book that I have with me of your book was actually Bob's copy. And I realized it when I was going through it again. And there were so many things underlined that I'm like, I wouldn't have underlined this. What? Mm. It doesn't look like my handwriting, And then I'm like, oh my God, this is Bob's. And there's this, you know, chapter right here. Um, and it's Bob's post-it note and it says worry and it's underlined. And then he circled the little subtitle here. It says, do not waste the rest of your loved one's life worrying about his or her death. And I thought that that was so interesting because one of the things you said Also, in your book, as you said, after more than 30 years, I have visited nearly a thousand dying people and so far not one, not one single person who is really actively dying has told me he or she was afraid. In fact, most people summon me to their bedside because they want to speak fearlessly and openly about their death, their funeral, what they want me to say and, and not to say. Often the first thing a dying person says after thanking me for coming is I'm fine and they mean it. So a lot of times we're worried that the person the dying person is going to be not at peace. But you're saying now, and now after all this data that you've collected, (laughs) over a thousand people, you're saying that the vast majority, if not all of them, have been... Unafraid. Unafraid.
1: And that's huge. When you are really dying. Because dying at a certain point. Now, I can't tell you that a 20-year-old isn't afraid of dying and they die because they get hit by a bus or something, but they weren't afraid of dying that day.
3: Right.
2: Death. It goes back to this idea of it's such a natural thing.
3: Right.
1: All things die. We're all going to do it. Everything, every living thing. If you don't want to die, then you need to be an inanimate object like stone. If you're going to act upon nature, which we all do, nature will act upon you. Gravity has an effect. Right. Age has an effect. And that is definitionally what it means to be human. Right. To be human is to fall apart. And what my experience has been 100% of the time.
0: Okay, well, that's a big... <laughs> it is.
3: <laughs> that's but a that lot.
1: doesn't mean it's universal. Right. But in my experience... Every time I've been with a person who was what I would say actively dying, let's say a day or two away from dying and they're conscious and able to communicate, they are completely unafraid and at peace. And the closest living example I can give to you that I imagine it's like, this is another one of those things until you're that person in that bed, you don't really understand it, but this is my vicarious sense of it. Think back to the time you had the worst jet lag In your life, you were a zombie. All you want to do is get into that hotel room, close those curtains. You don't care what time of day it is and get in bed and just pull the covers up over you and go to sleep. You're not anxious about going to sleep. You're not afraid to go to sleep. It's what your body
3: needs. Right.
1: And this is the experience I believe of dying is like, is, The body part of us, and I believe that the body and soul do separate, that the soul does outlive
2: our bodies. Right. When the body is done, it's okay. You're at peace with it because you are
1: exhausted.
0: You are worn out. Right.
1: You are worn out. and. The mistake I think a lot of people make in their thinking is that, well, if life is good, then more must be better. I cannot tell you how many times I've been
2: with family around a person who's dying, holding hands, and
1: I'll say something like, you know, he's reached this point where more is not better. And everyone goes, it's not there is a point where more is not better. There is a point also where you are prolonging prolonging a person's death, not
0: their life. Have you experienced if you said a hundred percent of the time all of these people with whom you've been present at the last moment um, they have all been at peace, where does this come into play this concept of regret. Is that a separate thing? Does that happen earlier in the process where somebody It does. It does. Uh, it's like, oh, I should have done this in yes. my life. I should have done that. And then they finally get to the point where they're like, all right, I'm ready.
1: Yes. And I think we all have this in life in a more microcosmic way. Like, I'm sure there are things you wish you had done when you were younger,
2: but okay.
3: You know, right.
1: I can live with that. You, you know, I often say to people, I've given up all hope of a better past. When people come to see me about something really horrible that's happened and they wish they could undo it, the first thing, it's a very blunt instrument, but it's like triaging and getting you going in the right direction. Like if you called me and said, Steve, I have to see you. And then you told me, you know, something that you really screwed up, you know, really embarrassing or really costly in some way. I, the first thing I might say to you is, well, I don't know about you, Kelly, but personally, I've given up all hope of a better past. And it immediately points you forward.
3: That's
0: all you can do.
1: That's right. And Actually, once thank you're for
0: that, because that's going to be helpful advice yeah, too.
1: You cannot have a better past. Yeah. Now, I'm not like pitching the last book, but the last please. Book, well, the last book I wrote was called "Is Called for You When I Am Gone."
0: Right. Which and, I have too. I just didn't have Bob's notes in that one. <laughs> that's fine.
1: So let me explain the premise of the book. You know how I said we make this big stew of stories? Mm-hmm. That we did that about Bob? Right. This book is to help people make their own stew and share it with their loved ones before they die rather than their loved ones having to guess what they would Which say nice. about these things. Right. right. It's called A Living Will. So it asks 12 questions to kind of unfold a person's life story and real inner truths. The first question in the book is what do you regret? And what I discovered in writing that chapter is that what most people regret most is not something they did. It's
2: something they didn't do. Mm -hmm. And if you can know that before it's too late, before
1: you're on your deathbed.
0: So go do the thing. Do it.
1: And and there's another question that says, when was a time you led with your heart? When did you privilege your heart over your brain? When did you not, on the one hand, on the other hand, it? when did you leap and what happened? And almost in every case, thinking with your heart, just doing it leads to the most beautiful, powerful, important part of your life. My wife and I, our anniversary is December 21st, 38 years. We got engaged on our second date. Wow. I was not using my head.
0: Led with your heart. Yeah. Uh, Bob and I, on our first, it's our first official date, not our first like hanging Meeting. out, but our yeah. first official, like, he's taking me out. We went to Vegas. It was a whole thing that he was very excited about. It was our first date, and we said, I love you. And like, we were boyfriend, girlfriend, the whole thing, literally on our first date. Yeah.
1: And that wasn't your intellect talking; that was your heart.
0: No, intellect was like, "Are you crazy?" Yeah, right. <laughs> this right? doesn't so, make sense. So None of this makes sense. They're
1: they're related. This idea of regret and so and subordinating your heart to your mind, and there, there's a time for both. It's not so binary. But this is not the state of being on a deathbed on your deathbed. No, you're just worn out. You want to rest. The, you know the rabbis called death, which means perfect rest. When you have a loved one who's so depleted,
2: what more could you wish for them than perfect rest? Yeah. And it's even, you know,
0: because in Bob's case, it was so sudden. He was so full of life. So, so in a sense, it's, it can be hard to reconcile well, I don't want him to have a perfect rest right now because he was fine, you know. But then once it happens, and you're realizing that that's it is what it is, and there's nothing you can do about it, but to know that he's in the you want the his perfect soul rest. to be at peace, right? Right. Yeah, and well, and the good thing about that is, you know, we in terms of his family, myself. And I'm sure Bob can really, truly say that there were no regrets and no
1: No, guilt. No unfinished business.
3: No.
0: Um, (laughs) I want to say one thing about Bob and then I want to switch gears for a second. But um, the last thing he said to you in that podcast, and I mean, I'm sure you've, you had spoken to him since then, but how he ended it was he said, I love you and I'm not afraid to say it, you know, and that has always been his big message has been, Never leave that on the table. Like he, when he loved you, you knew it because he told you.
2: I, I find myself particularly from the time COVID began until now saying,
1: I love you so effortlessly yeah. in a way I was withholding before. Yeah. I, I sign my emails and letters, love Steve or love you. And I mean it. And I did. I used to withhold those expressions of love. Yeah. And I don't really know why. Part of it was I didn't want to be perceived as improper in my role.
0: Right, like right. too too informal, or yeah. or
1: yeah, or creepy. Yeah, you know. Um, I just met
0: this guy five minutes ago. He's telling yeah. me he loves me. Yeah. Right,
1: right. That helped me back. That's helped me back from many things in life. Um, and I do regret some of them that I wasn't more myself, that I worried too much about what other people thought of me. But I've, since COVID started and I missed people so much, I've I've stopped worrying about how I might be perceived when I want to express love, you know? And there are many kinds and types of love. It's another way of saying, you matter, you matter to me. You really matter to me. Yeah. What more could a person hope to hear than you matter? I think it's one of the most powerful things you can say to someone.
0: I agree. Well, kind of switching gears is what I wanted to talk to you about now for a minute is, you know, 30 plus years of your career has been comforting people, whether it's one on one, families, obviously your congregation. Yeah. But now you've been source of comfort and being looked to Broadly. on a much more yeah. broad scale of course to your congregation now as a whole, but then more to the masses on mm-hmm. on, on social media. Um, I mean, almost to your entire religion. Like yes. People are looking to you for yes. direction. What has that felt like in terms of now I have to comfort people on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. How does that change your approach and kind of what has that, I don't know if I want to say pressure, but more of that. Uh, opportunity. And opportunity and obligation in a sense. Yeah, it's a calling right. for sure. What has that been like?
1: In a way it's easier because I can write something, post something, beyond some news channel or whatever do this with you and say things that I really do believe are going to organize the chaos, point them in a direction, comfort them, give them facts and truths. But I don't have to go to the hospital four times and be that the Shiva six nights and take the zoom calls. And, you know, in a way it, it, it harvests less marrow, less emotional marrow, because it's not as much to carry in the way I, have, in the way I carry people who are in the inner physical space that of my life. It's not. It's not. And it's still very valuable. I mean, this is one of the things that I think I fantasize about in a way that I think is the antidote to burnout. So for example, <clears throat> I've, I went on, I, I've talked about a lot of things on, um, I've been lucky enough to do a bunch of Today show segments, fourth hour segments, and I decided to go on and open up about my underlying anxiety disorder during mental health month, a few years ago, four and a half minute segment. And I literally think it
2: helped thousands and thousands of people. But none of them called me to sit on my couch of
1: tears in my office for an hour. Right. Right. So it's exhausting and demanding, but in a different way, it doesn't quite extract the marrow (laughs) that, that walking into a home does. And they're both important. And I wouldn't be good at the former if I, didn't have all these decades of of the ladder, but <clears throat> so yeah, demanding. Also, the thing I'm not used to
2: in this larger world is the speed of it
3: mm-hmm.
2: and how unbelievably mean people are.
3: Yeah,
2: how.
0: Like on social how many, media mainly. Yes, how many that.
1: mean cowards there are. Right. On social media.
0: Usually behind hiding behind an avatar. That was the <laughs> thing that, that Bob always got so upset about. And, you know, he was very, very sensitive and took things to heart and took things very, very personally. And there would be so many times <laughs> if he would post something. And you know, his stuff was usually yeah. not political or any it was just who knows? Like he would maybe post a off color joke. And no, Bob, An off color joke, believe it? please. He would get, you know, he would get some hate or whatever you would post, some, you know, he'd get some hate. And he would, you know, have a bot on Twitter or just a troll, yeah. not even a yeah. bot, but like yeah. a troll, you know, behind some, didn't even have a real picture or yeah. a real name, um, say something to him. And he would get so, he'd be like, I know. He showed me said, one once
1: when we were having like, lunch.
0: Okay. This is, you have to not pay attention to this. Do not give That's this. Right. A, and I would take his own advice, which was don't give it any energy. Yes. And yeah. I would make him do that in his own life. I'm like, don't give it any energy. That's not even a real person. I
1: actually remember this. I remember having lunch with him. I remember where we were sitting and he pulls out his phone and says, you won't believe this. And he reads it. What What do you think I should say? I said, I don't think you should say anything.
0: Right. Why are you even, <laughs> yeah. why are you even giving yeah. these people yeah. but energy? It, it, is,
1: it is like, it, it goes back to this idea that when you turn over a rock, you see a lot. And it's sad. But honestly, first of all, I've ne- I haven't ever been asked that question before. Like, What is the difference between down in the mud, hand to hand, shoulder to shoulder, carrying people through painful experiences? versus doing it in a more in a broader but more detached way. Right. And honestly, Kelly, I think I know I am moving
2: more toward the broader, less intense way. Because I'm I'm tired. I I, to be honest, I'm tired. It's a lot.
0: But also if you're Tired on one hand, but able to move the needle more on the other hand. That's right. Then it's not a worthless it, it's, pursuit. It's yeah. win-win in a sense yeah. because, yes, you're able to do more with less effort in a sense. Well, it's
1: it's the it's it's the same amount of hard work. Right. Nobody gets to where you are by being lazy. You have a following. You have a thing. You have a brand. You have a podcast. You have
0: you know, that's my parents. I did win the biggest slacker award in high school, by
1: the way. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Behind every successful child is a totally astonished parent. So they're happy huh, with yes, the way it turned yes, out. But of you, don't, you don't achieve in any field. Nothing good is easy. But it's a different kind of difficult where I'm headed next, I hope. It's a different kind of difficult that doesn't require me to donate marrow all day, every day. I'm right. fine donating marrow a few times a week,
3: right?
1: but not all the time, every day. It's, um, so it's just time, you know, it's time. And it's a very interesting question you asked me. And I, I think it, yes, I, I can, I don't even think, why do I have to justify my own choices? I don't know, but I can justify it by saying it's not as intensive emotionally, but it's reaching 2 million people. Right. And it all
2: matters. What, what, what pricks at me a little bit, when I graduated from rabbinical school,
1: I decided to ask a handful of professors, the ones I, I respected the most, what do you think it means to be a successful rabbi? Because it's a hard thing to, how do you grade a rabbi? What are the metrics? Mm -hmm. The best answer I got was from a guy named Ezra Spicehandler, who was my professor of Hebrew literature. I studied Hebrew poetry with him. He was not a rabbi. Brilliant guy. And he said to me, a successful rabbi is a person who profoundly affects the lives of at least three other people during the course of his or her career.
0: Three, wow. Three.
2: And I think I, I know what he was saying. He was saying one at a time, one at a time.
1: People ask me, how do you manage? How do you f- seem so present for each person? How do you, and my, it's the truth. I just, I just said, how do you do so many of this or so many of that? And I just say it
2: one at a time. When I'm in that room, I'm in that room with you, and but it does take a toll, and I, I need to evolve because
1: if you become burnt out and you're in the caregiving world, the, the soul-tending world, if you get burnt out, you don't belong there. You don't deserve the privilege of walking into that hospital room. If you're pissed off, you have to be there. Right. You don't deserve the honor of caring for another person. And, and so I'm trying to manage that moving from one trapeze to another. So I'm stepping down as a full-time senior rabbi in September, and then I'm going to work halftime for a couple of years, every other three-month period. And this is the first time in my life I have ever let go of one trapeze and the other one isn't there yet.
0: It's kind of liberating, though.
1: we um, We'll see. <laughs>
0: Well, you know what? If the so. measure of success—if right. <laughs> the measure of success is to have helped three people, then Steve, I would say you are the most successful because I know you did that alone in my own family. So, yeah. And
1: I—I I feel kind of bad whining about the emotional toll it takes, but I also have to be honest. First of all, thank you. That means a lot. Well, it's true. And, but I. I, and I kind of feel like being honest about it is sort of like complaining about what it took to do it. But I'm not complaining about it. I just feel like it's, it's an era. And you know what? Like, do you want to be 14 again?
0: No. No. 23 maybe. <laughs> 14, no. <laughs> yeah,
1: you don't. No. You know, do, I want to have, do I want to have more children? No. Am I glad I have kids? Yes. Yeah. It's an era.
0: The way my dad always said it, he goes, I wouldn't trade you for all the money in the world, but I wouldn't pay a nickel for another one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> There's a duality. <laughs> That's, so I, I think getting ahead of that, and I also know another great Yiddish expression, when you must, you can. I also know until I let go of that trapeze, the next one's not, not coming. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You got to, you got to just take the leap.
1: Got it subordinate the intellect and lead with your heart and good things happen.
0: Well, I'm excited for you on the next step of your journey. I will be there to support you as you have supported me and um, you know, as I said, I can't imagine having gone through what I went through without you there, especially during those very early days and I'm just very grateful for you as a person, as a friend, and thank you for sharing so much wisdom with us today because I know, as you said, the more people you can help by doing something where you can leverage your voice is so important. And I think just by you sharing all this today will help so many people. So thank you.
1: Thank you. And you know, I'm, I'm always going to show up for you. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's that joke the Gentiles leave and don't say goodbye. The Jews say goodbye and they don't leave. (laughs) So (laughs) The French exit, the Irish exit, right? You're stuck with me. I've mastered the the
0: Sicilian (laughs) exit. Well, glad to be stuck with you, Steve. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here, and I'm glad we enjoyed our our Sunday together. It was
1: delicious. I can't. I don't think I've had a hot fudge Sunday in the middle of the day since college. On a Thursday afternoon. Yeah, that's 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 living. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Kelly. It's great to be with you.
0: Thanks for listening. Today in the studio, we had a delicious hot fudge sundae with vanilla ice cream and a cherry on top, as well as a slice of cheese pizza. Ice cream and pizza is so personal, so I won't be giving out a recipe today. I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and you get to enjoy some pizza and ice cream soon. Comfort Food is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Acast. Our executive producers are Fanny Baudry, Cassie Berman, Leah Sutherland, and yours truly, Kelly Rizzo. Our audio producer is Chiara Nonni. Special thanks to Camila Goldenberg and Riley Avil Rank for production assistance. Our audio engineer is Matthew Blocka. Our editor is Nick Karismi. This podcast is hosted by me, Kelly Rizzo. If you like the show, please rate us five stars and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.